Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are pursuing practical insight about racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry. I'm Corey Leak. And Corey's filling in for Alicia on this episode. Corey's a good friend. He's a writer, speaker, and a diversity, equity, and inclusion coach in Livermore. Is that is that the right city? You know what? You got the city right. All, all the words you used were the words I would have used. <laughs> if y'all aren't familiar with Livermore, it's in the Bay Area. So he's yeah. he's NorCal, SoCal, California connection happening right now. Um, and today we're really excited to talk about Rima Zaman, who mm-hmm. is an author, a writer, an actress, and producer. Yeah, she's she's producing some stuff right now that's really exciting. Uh, actually, she's producing. She's working on a, on a screenplay for her book, I Am Yours, which we're going to talk about today. Mm. Um, so it, there's so much for us to talk about uh, around Rima's work. Uh, obviously, we want to talk about toxic masculinity since she talks a bit about some, a lot of encounters with men that she's had in the book that, that were I mean, uh, for everything from abusive to, uh, or unhealthy to abusive is what I was going to say. And also just finding the courage to be and turning your pain into your your purpose in life. Mm. Um, well, not not that your purpose would be the pain that you had, but turning that into a mission of some sort and finding your voice through all of that kind of struggle. So without further ado, here is Rima Zaman. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be. Hey Rima. Hi Andre. I'm so uh, I'm so glad that we're finally getting to do this again. <laughs> Me too. We had so many. Oh my gosh, it was like a journey getting to this recording date. We obviously we have to talk about your book. I am yours, which I have been seeing so much buzz about about the oh, book, and it's so you. encouraging. And so, yeah, I mean, you tell your story in the book. So I think that's a perfect segue. Tell us about um, I Am Yours. Thank you. And I'm really, yes, I'm, it is really encouraging um, to see such a buzz on a, in, in like a social scientist way, isn't it? As, um, because it is the first book to ever be written and published by a Bangladeshi woman that speaks on assault, abuse, and the path to resilience and owning mm-hmm. the power of my voice. And so on a historical level, it is, a, it is the first of that. And the best thing about being the first is it makes it possible for there to be a second and a third and a fourth mm. until mm-hmm. we lose count because there is no more need to keep count. And so it is a great privilege for it to be out in the world and for it to be embraced uh, beyond um, being the first kind of book. Um, I love that people are falling in love with the actual story and language. And I think that is why we fall in love with books is because the characterizing tropes fall away and we connect heart to heart as human being to human being. And my story is uh, I was born in Bangladesh in 1983. I'm the eldest child of an arranged marriage. I was born to a brilliant father and equally brilliant mother. I was very, very close to my mother's father, my, my grandfather, and in, in Bengali, uh, I would call him Nanabhai, which means grandfather. Mm-hmm. And so much of my concept of who I am was because of the way he uh, spoke to me about me. And so I Am Yours is dedicated to my grandfather. And the line I say is to Nanabhai, who wrote my truth into being. Wow. It is so important, right? It is so important for children to be given a concept of themselves that is positive because I be- and that is g- delivered to them by someone they hold in great esteem and respect. Who knows the person I would have become had my grandfather not given me this prophecy, this mm-hmm. vision he had of me. Yeah. And because simultaneously, the same summer that I read about myself with this name that means independence in Bengali. That same summer, a cousin 20 years my senior from my father's side of the family 
tried to molest me. Mm. And I was thankfully able to get away from him. And I reported that story. And I was told that this sort of thing happens, that boys will be boys. And it is best that I keep this story silent. Mm. And in that moment, I learned this is how abuse culture works. Mm. Abuse culture thrives on the silencing of children's and women's voices. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happened was perhaps because I had just been told a month before by my grandfather that I was born to be a woman who speaks for independence on sub-subterranean level, that was occurring. Because of that, I also vowed that I would be the first one in my family to break the trauma loop of silence and that I would grow up to be a voice for the stories and souls that had been ritually silenced through generations in my family. Mm. Mm. And then when I was 18 years old, I was stalked by a teacher in my high school. And again, I reported that story only to be silenced once again by the people who were my alleged guardians in the school system, the administration. My high school principal told Mm -hmm. me, that he would take care of things, but he ended up just silencing the story. And well, I was he thanks you, and, right? Yeah, he thanked he me thanked for you being for silent. Keeping it quiet, right. right. And I remember thinking I never offered my silence. It was just assumed because again, silence is extorted out of us so that yeah. the powers that be can remain in power. And so yeah. all of these stories were occurring at the same time. I had this deep well of fire and resilience that was nurtured in me by people like my grandfather and my mother. Mm -hmm. My mother, who has always been someone who has advocated for my voice and told me that I was born for a destiny of greatness, a destiny to be a voice for the voiceless. So Mm -hmm. I graduated from high school and I immigrated to the United States and I went to Skidmore College to be a women's studies and theater double major. And mm-hmm. I moved to New York after graduation and I became an actress and a model. And mm-hmm. I, uh, when I was 23, I was sexually assaulted um, by someone I met in the acting industry, actually. And mm-hmm. I had to make the decision of whether or not I should report that incident or keep it quiet, lest it threaten my chances at a possible green card. And back then I was completely by myself on an artist visa in New York. My entire family was still in Asia. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a single person whom I could turn to for support or advice. And the little I knew Mm -hmm. about the immigration system was based on what I know about human bias, which is Mm -hmm. there are so many people who are so willing to, to hold assault against a woman, right? And Mm -hmm. to, on some Mm -hmm. subconscious level, hold it against me. And so I didn't want my case to land in the hands of that one immigration officer who, who, who would believe that women should be punished for the crimes placed upon our bodies. The threat of human bias and the threat of victim blaming and the very real reality of victim blaming is such a huge reason why women don't ap- report the assaults committed upon our bodies. It is not fear yeah. that holds us silent. One of the reasons that women stay silent is because we have been given so much information through other experiences that to let us just accept the grim reality that just by speaking out doesn't mean that you're going to get justice. And so at all those turning points, we sit in the dark weighing our options. Mm -hmm. And that's how I found myself when I was 23. And I just stored, stored that story away as as deeper reason to keep working so that I could arrive to a stage in my career where I would have the platform to change things from the inside out Mm -hmm. so that this isn't a reality women have to accept anymore. So that bias in the justice system is no longer a reality women have to contend with. Yeah. Right. You know, there's a, there's a, a significant portion of the book that covers your, your marriage. Right. And I feel like there's some core lessons that you pull out of that experience too. Right. Like the you mentioned about bullying and things like that. Right. Could you and tell us about that section of your story? Yeah, and so that uh, that section comes pretty much right after um, these experiences of assault. Uh, I met 
the man who became my husband when I was 25. And we fell in love very quickly because of now in hindsight, I can tell because of all of the the conditioning I had been put through and the conditioning he had been through, put through, we kind of had this tumultuous, passionate um, love affair that within seven months we were married. He is American and he was born and raised with every privilege under the sun including being treated like America's almighty son, you know, white, privileged, wealthy mm. background. Okay. And I idolized him. And now in hindsight, I can see that because so much of my childhood and teenagehood, I never felt like I belonged or I belong. I, I was only on the outskirts of society. I was always that one lonely Bangladeshi girl, this brown girl who was never... Uh, loved by the popular white boys. And so if you Mm. can't be Barbie, your next biggest aspiration is to gain the love and admiration of Ken. But very Mm. quickly, that consumptive form of love uh, revealed itself to be a very toxic kind of love that was based on control and dominance. And so I think, you know, many women, I hope if their husband started to behave this way, they'd just put their foot down and say, hell no, I'm not putting up with this. But for me, I had been trained to endlessly forgive and be compassionate and understanding toward a man's um, toxic behavior. I'm going to lean into that some because when when you talk about abuse, right. when you say you 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 would hope that most people would put their foot down right. as soon as that happens, but the thing that you're talking about seems like it happened so subtly that it, it may happen to people without them even realizing it. Completely. And on top of that, what I also would love for you to comment on too is that like you're talking about abuse, and I think that most people associate abuse with physical violence, right? And but the things that you're talking about are not about you know being you know punched or thrown around no. or, or grabbed. And that's why I always say um, there is a whole section in I Am Yours where I talk about the difference between physical abuse and emotional abuse and how with physical abuse, it is every bruise is like a receipt that you can hold up and say, Mm -hmm. here's the violence. I now have proof and permission to Mm -hmm. leave or at the very least Mm -hmm. to feel angry on my own behalf. And, you know, it is, it's this emotional warfare that becomes really toxic and mm-hmm. uh, really manipulative. Uh, people who are emotional mm. abusers are generally very, very cunning and intelligent. They're generally mm-hmm. people who have an amazing capability over language because language is mm-hmm. the thing that they use. It is no accident or coincidence that the way I started retaliating was my human instinct kinked in and it told me to start writing. And I started writing first as a way to hold him accountable to his words. And, but then it became my own fortification. The more intelligent I grew, the more articulate I became, the more threatened he grew and the Mm. more successful and the more articulate and uh, commanding over my voice I became, the better I was doing in my career too, because my confidence mm. was, was, was growing. And so I started booking bigger and bigger acting jobs. And again, the more threatened he became by my success and the more threatened he became, the more abusive he attempted to be until one day he evicted me from our home. He called me up while I was babysitting and he said, don't come home. And so all I had was wow. those two changes of clothes, my laptop, a newly discovered voice, and $60. And I was homeless, but I was also euphoric with purpose. And Mm. I realized this wasn't a rejection, it was release. And I realized that if my writing had given me the grit and strength I needed to exit a toxic situation, I had a social responsibility to lean into and develop that body of work so that I could write a book and publish a book and publish other things and be part of other projects 
that would give other people a chance to their freedom. There's also something else that comes up for me too, as I, as I, as we talk about abuse, as I read about abuse, and right. that is that, you know, and we talk about this in the larger conversation that we had about how you mentioned the things that you name are not those overt physical acts of violence, no. but it's also the, that abuse kind of is on a spectrum, right? Like, right. you know, and so it's not just that, like this binary, which I think also ties into, you know, us talking about like, is this person the devil or are they a person in the type of world that, that creates that kind of, you know, behavior mm-hmm. without excusing them for that behavior, but also taking that into a factor and giving you hope to do something. Anyway, it's not just this binary where it's like you are a terrible person and you've done things to harm, harm, harm people or you have never, ever done something like that in your life. And therefore, you're a good person. But the, exactly. the, there are all kinds of people and the way that we behave and relate to one another sometimes can be harmful in ways that, you know, yeah, in ways that some might say, yeah, that that was abusive. And sometimes I don't even think that we even understand that we're in that kind of toxic relationship or we're relating mm-hmm. in that unhealthy way. Absolutely. And I love that you bring up the the topic of binary because the thing about emotional violence is it's all the more genderless because physical mm. violence, because in general, men's bodies are stronger than women. When a male abuser decides to use physical violence, that is like, that's more accessible in their toolkit than for mm. a female abuser. Mm-hmm. unless that female abuser is abusing a child, right? And beating up a smaller human body. Mm-hmm. But emotional abuse is something that both, that all genders have equal access to because it comes down to verbal and mm-hmm. psychological manipulation. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, I Am Yours is written directly to the reader. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, the first two words of I am yours is dear love. And I write the entire 300 page book as though it is a continual love letter that I'm writing to my reader. And Mm -hmm. I guide you through this really using this very tender and loving voice. I guide the reader through these experiences that I have gone through in the most gentle voice so that I, that gentleness helps you uncover memories of your own traumatic situations. And that gentleness, the language then helps you come to terms and closure and healing of those similar experiences that you may have gone through. And mm-hmm. all of this is architected with a very specific intention for, all, for this to be a, a, a manual of healing that is available and applicable for any human being, regardless of gender, regardless of race. And I know that this voice of gentleness and compassion and love is, is, an, is a very important part to why so many of my readers are male, because I never once use an angry voice that says us versus women versus men, mm-hmm. or that this is a male problem. Abuse is a male problem. No, it's not emotional abuse in particular is so, you know, so many women are capable of it. So all of this together is why the book is constructed in the way it is on a craft, structure, voice, and thematic way. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as I was reading, and I don't know the, I don't know the name of your ex-husband, but I remember reading and putting the book down several times and going, this guy sounds like a dick, (laughs) but but you don't write about him like he's a dick. Thank you. You write honest. You write honestly about what happens, but you don't ever just say like, "This guy is a sh- this guy's this guy's a derelict of a person." No, you know? I never do. Because, um, and for numerous reasons, first of all, my integrity would never allow me to say that about any human being. Um, and I also believe that if you shame a person, you. Uh, you you basically annihilate their chances of growth, which is to say, if we yeah. shame people, we also annihilate society's chance to heal and evolve. So as an artist, my duty is to be of service. So if I use my mm-hmm. art to shame people, 
I am literally betraying my vow as an artist because I cannot be of service if I cut off people's chances to grow. Yeah. Right? You know, and that's so, such an interesting yeah. posture to have in our, in our moment in history mm-hmm. because, you know, we do have a lot of that where the injustices that we're facing are very serious and they deserve attention and they deserve to be spoken about truthfully. Right. But I do wonder about that you know, in the age of, oh gosh, okay. Like when I say this, like, I don't want anyone to think that I'm defending any of these guys, but right. it's just a question that I have totally. where I think about our, our Me Too moment where we do need, like men, we need to be held accountable for all of our, you know, for all of the ways that we are complicit in this system, actively or passively. Right. And then I wonder at the same time, like, is there any type of redemption for people who have done things that are unconscionable? And this is why I wrote the book I did the way I did, which is I write about him with complete transparency and truth through a tone mm-hmm. of immense curiosity and compassion for why he did the things he did. Because that's my greater goal as a writer is to be an investigator into the human condition to understand why do abusers become abusers? Because no child is born as an abuser. Every child, we are born innocent, and then we become the pain or the love that is modeled to us, right? Mm. You're holding a couple things in tension in a really interesting way, Mm -hmm. is that yes, this happened. Right. And still allowing that person to be a whole person yes. without that being the only thing there is to know about exactly. them. But also, but also holding your own boundaries and saying, just because I can understand how they got there doesn't mean that mm-hmm. I should be with them in that. Completely. <laughs> and so again, to like come back to um, the Me Too movement. So what's our goals with any kind of larger social justice and progress? Progress is the goal right? It's not just about creating all of this noise and giving voice to our rightful rage and, our, and our, the, the grief we have felt uh, toward our wounds. That has a place, but that is the f- beginning of the conversation so that we can set up the conversation that these are the things that happened. Now what? What are our takeaways mm-hmm. that we need to understand about those who abuse so that we can make better choices in the way we parent our young men, in the way we Mm -hmm. interact with men, in the way, um, and in the way as women, we hold our own in relationships. Like the, Mm -hmm. the pivotal point in my first marriage wasn't, oh, the day he started being unkind. The pivotal point Mm -hmm. came on the day when I learned the power of my no and the authority of Mm -hmm. my yes. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That in all instances of demoralization, I was complicit as well in many ways because I let him walk over me. For, for a long time, I was uh, subservient. I kept myself small lest I overwhelmed him, right? Mm-hmm. And so understanding my complicity also let me understand the power I would have were I to behave contrary to that. I reclaimed ownership over my narrative. In an abusive mm. relationship, what happens is your abuser becomes the voice in your head, which is to say they become the voice directing your narrative. And by writing, I reclaimed authority over that narrative. I became once again the author of my life. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear in what you're saying. So in my language in social movements mm. and talking about change, People tend not to challenge the status quo until they have a type of cognitive liberation. Right. Where, Absolutely. where they, un- they understand two things. They, they, come to see the pro- they come to see the situation that they're in as both unjust and changeable. Right. But they have to see both. Like, yes. Like, no, that's, that's a great this- point. Um, and I came into cognitive liberation by writing. And then I, well, then I started to realize like, well, that I had to make a plan to come up with mm-hmm. the other ways to legally liberate myself from the situation. Yeah. He, it would be impossible for me to initiate a divorce. Mm-hmm. His mm-hmm. ego would not allow me to leave him unless he thought it was his own idea. So 
said that you started liberating yourself through your writing. And so I feel like it's important. What, what, what story did you start writing? Yeah. And so I was writing just nonfiction. I was writing essays that were basically about our daily life. And also by writing about these things, uh, accidentally, it helped me uncover a lot about my parents' marriage and my father's personality and what could have led him to be the way he was with my mother, which was very, uh, very similar to my ex-husband. And so when I was writing all of these new sentences that were in my own voice, it was empowering on so many levels. And I started recognizing that I was sitting on this kind of intelligence that I had never utilized before and mm -hmm. that there was more to me than going, than being someone's wife. And there was more to me than being someone's hired actress. And you mentioned a few times, like you emphasize, like right. you were reciting the words of white men that as a Bangladeshi woman, you know, and you highlight that in the book. And I wonder, right. you know, for some people, it's just, okay, here's another person that wrote a book or whatever. But right. it, I wonder if it feels symbolic to you, mm. like the way that your career has evolved and the work that you're doing and it all is around the voice. Like, is there is there deeper meaning Absolutely. specifically because of the racial dynamics there? Absolutely. I am cognizant of the fact that when I was 11 years old, my grandfather, a man who I, whom I respected, admired like a god, told me that I was mm. born to be a woman whose name means independence. And mm -hmm. almost simultaneously, I was stalked by a predator. And I was told boys mm. will be boys and that this happens. And I made a vow right. that I would use those two things to be a tireless voice for justice and resilience for the very voices that have been ritually silenced by society. And so that to me is where I get my ambition. That to me is where I get my positivity in the face of adversity, because I'm mm. cognizant of my why and I'm cognizant that my existence works on a historical and symbolic level. My refusal mm. to die, my refusal to mm. give up means so much. And I have a duty to continue. Toxic power cannot exist without our fear. Which mm -hmm. is to say that the more confidently, bravely, and loudly we insist on existing and speaking, that in mm. itself is a riot. That in itself is a revolution. And that in itself gives other people a toolkit to do their own rising. Here I am, a woman who, you know, I was literally a woman's studies major, highly mm -hmm. educated college graduate. And yet I was a girl who for the longest time believed the narrative that had been spoon fed to me. Patriarchy does not want me to exist. Mm. My confidence, my authority over my voice, my success threatens the entire infrastructure of patriarchy and white privilege that says someone who looks like me and comes from my heritage should not be commanding so much attention. Mm. Right? I just love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? And here I am, loudly existing. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. Okay, so Corey, thoughts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Uh, so many thoughts. I mean, her story is so amazing. Um, yeah. I, I, you know what? I just, uh, gosh, I, I wrote so much stuff down. I don't even know where to begin. Where do you want to start with, with thoughts on, on what we just heard? Um, oh, okay. Well, here's the question. Cause this is something I think about too. And, and usually when I'm talking to, to other people about Rima's book and her work, um, a lot of times I'm talking to other men. And so I, I'm always curious about how men experience, you know, um, how they experience her. Um, because she's mm. talking about, <laughs> okay, let, let me just, uh, I'll, um, I'll, I'll highlight a couple of things. 
Okay. Uh, when she talks about her being in school and her talking with like the principal about what, you know, about this older man who tried to take advantage of her or whatnot. And he says, thank you for being quiet about this. Yeah. And, and she says, I, I never offered my silence, <laughs> you know? Well, right. she didn't, she, she said, you know, she said that's what she, what she was thinking that she never offered her silence. And, you know, she talks about her, her marriage, her former marriage in New York and about the little things that he would do. Um, sometimes some, some of those things were really big, but, but when I, when I read those kinds of things, um, there are a couple of things that happen for me. First off, I, I do a bit of a check on myself and go, hmm. are there ways in which I feel so small and insecure around the women in my life or around my partner that in some ways I try to dim their light, right? Hmm. Hmm. Because I think the interesting thing about the way that Rima talks about um, patriarchy and toxic masculinity in her book is she illustrates it and she Mm -hmm. illustrates how subtle it can be. Mm. And she illustrates how it's almost like there's an unspoken agreement that this is just what we're doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like with, with the story uh, about the, the principal and then the subtlety of, I mean, it's not subtle I, I want to like backtrack. I'm like, it's not subtle for a man to tell his wife or to ask his wife to change, you know, her clothes or to wipe the makeup on her face. Like that's not right. subtle. You right. Know? And at the same time, I don't think that everyone understands that as abuse. You know? Well, and it might, it might, you know, and I think had we not had the context of her book and hearing her story inside that context, these, these things that happen sound egregious, but I wonder how it would sound if you hadn't heard her story or read her book because it's so woven into men to dominate and be patriarchs and Mm. that that like would we think that those things were abusive had she not used her voice and raised you know the, the sound of the alarm on it if you will to say Hey, this is not okay. I'd like to think that I right. would understand that, but I wonder if there was a season in our lives as men because of how we are raised, because of the environment we grow up in, that like we think things are just normal until someone who is on the other side of that thing goes, no, nah, that's not okay at all. Um, I've noticed two things like that are really simple, but I hear women talk about them and then I catch myself doing them. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to be better about this. One thing is that I noticed that some of my some of my friends that are women, when we're talking, they're much less likely to interrupt me, cut in and make their point, you know, mm-hmm. as I'm as I'm making my point. I do mm-hmm. that far more often than they than they do, you know. <laughs> um, and the other thing that I noticed, too, and this is one of my mentors, her name is Laura Lee. Laura Lee told me that, you know, she'll be in meetings sometimes. And as soon as she picks up her phone, I know as soon as she starts talking, like men will pick up their phone. And start like doing whatever, you know, like we don't know what they're doing. They might be texting or checking Facebook or whatever. Um, And I notice, you know, I I hate to admit it, but I've I've caught myself doing that sometimes, like being in a group or being in a meeting. And (laughs) I laugh because because I go in my head like, oh, my God, am I doing this right now? Because that's literally the thought that I've had before Uh, Hmm. when a woman in the group will start talking. I'll. Uh, I'm going to check Facebook now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, dude, I think it makes me kind of wonder about the structures that um, that we've grown up in, that we live in. And do they, for all of us, create our roles that we sort of naturally fill in and fall into, no matter how conscious we may be? Um, and, And I think we're all on this process of trying to learn and grow and be better. But like, you know, sometimes I feel like I just naturally fall into positions. Like for, as an example, on the, on the flip side of that, there are lots of times where I'll be talking with white men who will interrupt me far more than I'll interrupt them uh, because uh-huh. it's almost like we, we naturally fall into 
our position in the hierarchy before we have mm-hmm. a chance to consciously go, I want to be fully present in this room as um, someone who's mindful of the other person's dignity. And I hope that makes sense, but that's just kind of what I heard when, when you were talking about that. Like, it feels like it's such a natural thing. Well, they say that, you know, by the time we're like four or so, like we already know what kind of world that we live in, you know? Dang. So that's why you can give a child and you, you, you remember this test. You can give a child the doll, the black doll and the white doll and say, which one is prettier? You know? Wow. And most of the kids will choose the white doll, right? Because they already know. They already know like this, this beauty standard, right? They can't articulate it in that way. But they've already caught on to that. This is the standard of beauty because of the the movies and the television shows and the stories and, and the stories that they get. Um, and so, I mean, we, we're talking about like really subtle ways that even us being socialized kind of into the, as bell hooks would say, the white white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Um, we're we're we've kind of identified some really subtle ways, and I see how that can play out in some larger ways. You know, when we get into relationship, you know, and into the more extreme examples. And you mentioned, I think, before about just kind of stories, you know, um, mm-hmm. masculinity is a story. Femininity is a story. Yeah, um, it is. And how how genders interact and all that. And we have kind of a dominant story that says, <laughs> and I don't know if you felt this pressure, but I have felt this pressure, right? Like, especially as a black man, actually. I mean, I don't know how white people talk about their relationships, but I know that I know that um, black people as a group in America uh, tend to be we we tend to lean a bit more conservative, you know. Um, uh. And so I've heard a lot about gender roles, you know, and about what a man is supposed to do and what a man is supposed to be. Yeah, a man is supposed to be the head of his household. Yes, and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah, you're up hearing that too, and I, I had to. So as I as you know, I've been married now for 20 years. Well, I'm in year 21 right now. And I had to unlearn a lot of the things that came from, I think you're right, being conservative, cons- black and conservative, but also being, you know, Christian. There's this like, mm-hmm. you're the head of the household that's kind of woven in. So whenever we would have to make major decisions, it was just sort of naturally assumed that I would lead the way. And I've had to unlearn that with even my wife. And it's been like times where you, f- you find yourself in this new space where you're like, okay, well, how, how do I make space for both of us to be co-partners and me not to have the dominant sense of I'm the man, you know, when I come home, there should be food and the house should be clean, all those sorts of things that like just sort of, again, the story that's told to us. Right. When we're younger, about what it means to be a man and what it means to be in a relationship. Did you ever buy into like all of that? Like, you know, a man is supposed to be strong and tough, and you know, obviously head of the household thing, and but, but also kind of the machismo of of all of that. It was was that ever something that you felt like you know you needed to attain? I a hundred percent bought into that. I, I was. You know, I've been an athlete. So in athletics and competition, you know, this this term man up that is mm-hmm. used, you know, so definitely bought into yeah. that like sense of that man up meant to win. It meant to yeah. dominate. It meant to be better than the person in front of you. And that doesn't stay on a basketball court or a football field. That that mentality is woven into a man. So much so. That like when you are at a boardroom table and someone in front of you is talking, if if it seems that that person is in a lesser role in the hierarchy, of course, you're going to man up and assert your dominance um, Mm. and talk over or try to outdo or ignore because what they're saying doesn't really matter because they're not in the position that you are in the hierarchy. And so I'm definitely bought into it. And it's this. I mean. It's hard. And I think this is why I know we're not talking about white folks, but this is (laughs) this is why I sometimes have little patience for 
white folks, because it's not like they're the only people being asked to reevaluate the way that they were taught to be and move uh, and be in the world. Right. Because you, yes. and I, you and I as black men are also having to learn and, and relearn things about gender, about our role as men, right. about all of those mm-hmm. things. And we're having to learn and be uncomfortable and ask questions and sit back and listen. And so that like that makes me go look at white folks and go, yeah, you're not the only people that have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I mean, so much of so much of this is connected, you know, and, yeah. and I think that this is this is a part of what we talk about when we talk about uh, being intersectional and understanding the way that we carry multiple identities that in some ways, you know, when it comes to white people. Like black people are marginalized by white people, but when it comes to black men, like we can, um, we can at least, we can at least try <laughs> to right. to participate in the patriarchy to some degree, and we can, you know, and in some degree, to some degree, over certain groups of women, we can actually, you know, exercise some forms of of supremacy and or or dominance, right? Yeah, and it's important for us to understand. But I I get your point. Like when you're te- when you're talking to white people about white supremacy, it's like they just hear, "Well, I'm bad," <laughs> you know. Like you're just telling me I'm a bad person <laughs> through and through, and then they shut down, you know. And speaking of shutting down, um, I think that one of the stories. So I I never I want to say that I never bought into masculinity in a conscious way. Hmm. So. I didn't feel that I, I didn't feel consciously that like I have to attain to this ideal of manhood, but I still ingested those messages and those stories. And I still would find myself at times um, acting out of that story, you know? So um, Hmm. there's so many ways that we could talk about this, but one thing that has come up for me as we've been talking is that I feel like some, or sometimes I have felt rather, that in order to be the the man that you know that is introduced to us when people say you're not a man when people demasculate right. you yeah. <laughs> right. in order in order to be that guy <laughs> that that men have to die inside hmm. i that's how i feel and that's why i bucked against it uh as a young person and I also, I'm, I'll make the point again, every time that I say that I wasn't really interested in being that guy, that there were still ways that I tried at different points, um, mm-hmm. even, though I w- even though I wasn't doing it with intention. But anyway, to be that guy, you have to have a very limited range of emotions. It's actually the only emotion you're allowed to have is anger. Right? For sure. Yeah. Um, you're not it's supposed to cry. helpful one. Nope. Yeah, you're not. You're definitely not supposed to cry, um, you know, and yeah. and be sensitive and to be uh, emotionally honest or to have like this full range of emotion. And but see, here's the destructive part of that, too. So I experienced that from men, but I also experienced that from women, uh-huh. you know, who would also, you know, say things like you're not a man because, you know, of me expressing, you know, that that larger range of emotions. And so I, I don't say that to, to blame it on women, but I say that we all in some ways participate in the patriarchy in the same yes. way that sometimes black people participate in white supremacy. Absolutely. Right? So anyway, Absolutely. the destructive side, and I think that people want to toughen you up because in order to be that guy, the, uh, the, the man who is implied when people tell you you're not a man, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that mm-hmm. guy has to be tough. He has to be able to win a fight, right? Yes. He's <laughs> Yes. You remember Mark Driscoll used to talk about this when he was like, um, the, the guys in the Bible, they were dudes, you know, <laughs> tough as nails, win a fight, dudes, you know, right? And everyone's just so afraid that you're going to be a quote unquote sissy or you're going to be quote unquote gay, which is a yes. part of the patriarchy. Just exactly. going to say that in passing. Maybe we'll come back to it. Um, <laughs> but I remember like one time I was standing and I've told this story before, but just as a kid standing and I, I rested my hand on my hip. And my older sister, she's like 10 years older than me. Her boyfriend looked at me and was like, don't hold your hand on your hip like that. You know, Mm-mm. it's not like that level of policing to yeah, make man. sure that you can be that guy yes. and you can win a fight. And the, the thing that they're trying to do is make you someone that can protect a woman. Um, but the, 
the destructive side to that, although that, I mean, uh, maybe I've just implied that that's not destructive in itself. Um, the destructive side to that is if you only have access to your anger, like that's the only thing that you know how to express and that you feel is okay to express, then when you get into a relationship with someone, whether it's romantic or otherwise, like you don't know how to, you don't know how to give voice and to articulate all the other experiences that you're having. Yes, we only, yeah, exactly. What is, what is that that quote? If, um, if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think that's yes, what it is. exactly. No, I, I think that exactly. as, as men, we kind of have that like anger is the tool we have to express ourselves, to win, to achieve victory. And I'll say in my own life, man, as as a father of daughters, I find myself struggling with the tension of being strong, but and also expressing vulnerability. Because as they become teenage, yeah. as they become teenagers, they want less and less to do with their dad. I become more and more annoying. I'm more gross. All these other things <laughs> just happens, right? So you know, I'll go to their room and I'm a bother. And but you know, so as as dad, as a man, I go into anger mm. instead of being the as a father going you guys are hurting my feelings i struggle right. with saying to my daughters it hurts yeah. my feelings that you don't like to be around me because yeah. that doesn't feel like the kind of uh, of emotion or range of emotion that a man should display for their daughter so i'm constantly you're not allowed to have your feelings hurt exactly is that you're not you're not allowed to say that sentence you're not you're not. And so I've learned to say to my daughters, my feelings are hurt. And it's very uncomfortable to say it, but it's something I'm going, it's it's true. It's authentic. It's what's happening. It's what I'm experiencing. And I want them to know that men can have their feelings hurt as well um, right. to, to sort of deconstruct this idea that men are just bruisers. Right. I want I want for people to realize that men can have their feelings, period. Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, it's I'm so glad that like you're in this conversation too because you have you you're married and you have daughters. I'm in a house full of women. <laughs> <laughs> like full. And that's a perspective women. that I just don't have. Right. And, and you know what? And I you know, you know how we all sort of like you said participate in in these structures in as subtle ways. Whenever I yeah. have gone to speak places, I've done this several times. I will say there's, I'll put a picture of my family up and I say, here's my beautiful family. It's my wife, Julie, and my three daughters. I live in a house full of women. Women, y'all pray for me. Like that, oh. that, that joke, right? That's like a common joke. And everybody laughs. Oh, ha, ha, ha. And yeah. It's like, yeah. why do I need? Now, there are moments that it is difficult and where like I can understand the comedy of being a guy and having, <clears throat> being outnumbered when it comes to like preference and and things right. like that. And I yeah. and my my wife and daughters love to spend a ton of time with them all. I do not. But that is not necessarily mm -hmm. inherently mean just without me telling you those specifics about our family dynamic. Just the fact that there's a male with a bunch of women should not necessarily mean that you should pray for me. But I just have yeah. naturally participated <laughs> in that way of thinking. But think we don't talk about men that way. Right. We just don't make those kinds of jokes about dudes, mm -hmm. you know, and. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is actually telling, like it is in a way it's, it's harmless. Right. And in another way, I think that it's very telling about the kind of society that we live in. And yeah. I also thought like, when you said that, like, what would it, what would it mean for us to inverse a joke like that? Right. And to say like, so I live in a house full of women, so pray for them. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, and, and you know what, that is so enlightening. Because what that does is it put, takes the emphasis off of me. It's so because the first version is I'm the hero of the story. You guys pray for me. The uh -huh. second version is I am the I, I am the antagonist. So pray for them. And I think that's mm. I think that is flipping the story that society tells us about patriarchy on its head and saying the patriarchy is not the victim. It's 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 you know or, or you know certainly is not the hero. It's like it's it's a different narrative and I, and I like it. Yeah, the truer story, I mean the true story is that like women are not a burden to men. Like as no. a group, right? Like no. <laughs> <you know? laughs> as a group. Yeah, women are not a burden to men. 
but as a group, you know, we we put we have put women through a lot of stuff. <laughs> For sure. You know, and continue to and continue to do so. Um, I think what I was just getting at earlier is something that Bell Hooks talks about in her essay, Understanding Patriarchy, and that is that patriarchy is a system that advantages men. And yet, um, all of us in some way are trained to uphold it. So it takes a lot of, I think it's going to take a lot of intention for, for all of us to understand the ways that, you know, we have internalized these messages about who should have about, about male dominance, basically, you know, the, the idea that, you know, (laughs) that men should just have more space and more, more power and more say. Yeah. And speaking of bell hooks in that essay, something that stood out to me and it's, it still sits with me. She says that there's been no mass movement to liberate men from patriarchy. Dang. And it's so interesting because usually when we think about these oppressive systems or dominant systems, we always think about the people who are affected by that, you know, the people who are kind of under the boot of that system. Yeah. You know, and thinking about freeing them, right? Liberating them. And I'm I'm not saying that's wrong. However, like in this, you know, men are controlled by these ideas about what it means to be a man, about and and we need to be freed from those stories. And that, I'm not saying that that's the work of women. I think that that's our work, you know, to talk about that with one another and to have these conversations like now. Um, it reminds me of another uh, scholar who talks about this. And I'm, I could use this as an allegory for white supremacy, where he says that racism is used to control the behavior of whites. Right? <laughs> it's, it's the fact that people who think that they are white uh, have internalized these messages of superiority and they're enacting them in their individual exchanges and also, you know, in any place where they're holding power and stuff like that. And I think that's the point that I'm making too about, about male supremacy is that um, it's appropriate that we talk about women's rights. You know, we also need to talk about um, how men can have a healthier view of what it means to be a man. Okay, I just need to name something. As we're talking about this, I feel so insecure. <laughs> <laughs> same. same, man. Because you, you don't want to dishonor um, people when you're talking about masculinity and toxic masculinity and, and, and women. It's, you know, when there's not women present to sort of help you know if you've wandered into some, you know, problematic territory, it can be, it feels insecure. It's not, I, I think... For me, and, I, and I, I think I could say for you also, I don't think it's kind of insecurity. It's like, I don't want to look bad. It's more, I don't want to dishonor women who may be listening or, or just women in general by just being a dude. Yeah, I don't want to dishonor anyone. And I think, on, honestly, it's a vulnerable position to talk about this um, as someone who, you know, participates in, in the patriarchy, right? Yeah. And to know, that, to know that I have blind spots here, right? And to know that, like, I'm I'm running my mouth <laughs> and I'm probably exposing them. <laughs> For sure. Well, and this and this is partly what I appreciate about Rima too is that she's very gracious about um she's very gracious about dealing with men. Like when you read I Am Yours, she writes it kind of as like a love letter. Yeah. Um and I know that a lot of women have gotten so much out of reading the book because of the way that she shares but she's also she's she's very honest. She's very truthful in the way she illustrates um, uh, these 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 unhealthy you know encounters with men. But she also really does believe that she she does believe that that men have to participate in this movement, and so she wants to speak graciously to men and to invite them into that movement. Which I mean, she's better than me because I right. <laughs> You know, like I, I am not really concerned so much with how white people feel about how we talk about anti-racism, but Rima does care about how men feel as she's talking to us about patriarchy. Yeah, she does, and she does like she doesn't really make men and, and nor and not, and not even her her abuser, her ex. 
She doesn't even make him out to be this evil or morally corrupt or, in your words, this derelict of a person. Like, (laughs) (laughs) she just, she just, she looks, she views this story to me like an anthropologist views a human behavioral trait and just goes Mm -hmm. very objectively, zoomed out, looks at it and says, here are the factors that lead to this thing. Now let's talk about this thing. Well, she she keeps his full humanity in view. Yeah, she does. Right. Um, and I don't know if that comes with, you know, years being, you know, with time being removed from it. Um, but she does, she does look, she does connect it in her book when she says, um, my father was a bully. I married a bully and we, and when we're bullied, we become bullies to ourselves. Right. And she's connecting this in this much larger story in a way that doesn't excuse the behavior at all. Right. 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 But also holds that, you know, this person, you know, it's just like they say, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. You know, I've been, I've been on the receiving end of abuse and I remember um, thinking about, I mean, I have thought about, you know, those people as even, even in what they did, it wasn't what they intended to do. And it, it doesn't excuse it at all. But I can understand like this person was raised in this kind of family, in this kind of context where they didn't have exposure and the resources to actually love me the way that I needed to be loved or love me in a healthy way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I loved that she, when you talk about like her, her father, but I love that she, when she talked about her grandfather and yeah. that was huge to me. And I don't remember the exact term or, or at least know how to say it, but the, the term, the, the word that meant who wrote my truth into being was, oh yeah, like mm-hmm. that was just so powerful because yeah. she was given a gift from her grandfather that mm-hmm. he deposited something in her really young, saying, "You are powerful. You are strong. You deserve to take up space in the world." And I, I thought about like um, someone close to me in in my my mine and my wife's family who once told me that if their grandmother had not died, their life would have turned out different. And their this person I'm talking about in our family, man, really struggled with with uh, substance abuse and and had a yeah. pretty shitty life. Um, yeah. And she looks back at that and says, "If someone would have been a voice in my life and continued was able to continue to be that voice in my life." my life would have turned out differently. And I thought that that whole story of her grandfather was just so, so powerful. Yeah, in some ways, I mean, it, it's almost like it was, it was almost prophetic in what he did. Like, yeah. like he, he saw that. And when you meet Rima, she, in some ways, she feels like she just appeared one day. You know, <laughs> like, like she just appeared fully formed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, I mean, she she has a lot of love for people in general. She has this just big heart and and big energy to just love and 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 help people. Like you, you talk to her the, for the first time, and you feel like you've been friends forever. Um, but it's so interesting to see that, right? Like he, yeah he he named that, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to say he gave it to her, but he saw it, yeah. right? And he he called it out. And to see that, you know, that really is who she is. She is, I mean, she's a force. Yeah, for sure. And she's trying to to help others understand that, you know, you can also, no matter what you've been through, like you can also use your voice and you can inspire others like she's doing now. Yeah, 100%.
Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, uh, we love having these conversations with you, and we hope that you'll join us for the next one. Um, our editor is Ross Montgomery. We're going to start shouting out Ross at the end, so that you know. Um, shout out to all of our wonderful supporters on Patreon. And if you're not a supporter on Patreon, just know that Patreon supporters get the unedited versions of these episodes, and they get them early. Ooh. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at Henry. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace.